When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? From the beginning, all men by nature were created alike, and our bondage or servitude came in by the unjust oppression of naughty men. For if God would have had any bondmen from the beginning, he would have appointed who should be bond and who free. Therefore I exhort you to consider that now the time has come appointed to us by God in which ye may, if ye will, cast off the yoke of bondage and recover liberty. As John Ball in 1381. John Ball, an ordained priest in what must have been the Catholic faith, riling up the peasantry in Kent and Essex in England in 1381 after marching on London to demand justice of the king before marching on London, actively preaching articles contrary to the faith of the church, which sounds more like the church. We know the Protestant kind. And it turns out he was not alone. His interpretation, this interpretation of the scripture was quite common among the zealous in those days. Imagine. He had been excommunicated 12 years before at the ripe old age of 30 and was finally hung, drawn and quartered after the rebellion had been crushed in the presence of King Richard II, who was 14 at the time. Fun. So, on the one hand, we are all equal in the eyes of God, created alike, and hierarchy, elitism, anointed royalty, racism, and at last the 1% are perversions of God's will. I know the current Catholics are very keen on the poor about this. I shouldn't need say anything, but John Ball and John Wycliffe before him seemed more keen on the peasantry getting a fair wage for their labor, so avoiding being poor while still being virtuous. Very rare in the early church as it has come down to us. Very rare today where I guess the Protestants have decided being poor is evidence of sinfulness. Bears more looking at for sure. The reasons for the Peasants' Rebellion are all over Google. I recommend you looking them up. I don't need a lot more info on the depravity of English feudalism. I have several times been forced to find some glory in it. Shakespeare's John of Gaunt being a heroic figure is one, for instance. It seems a low point even in the sump of what we earnestly call a civilization. The peasants' grievances were many. And the deserving was great. The only possible justification for their treatment is aristocratic terror and or the belief that peasants are another species, a lower one, a sentiment still with us, central to some of us. If one believes they had it coming, that it was the natural order, that one should always be one should always obey the police, no matter how insane, unfair, or brutal their behavior. Ah, the kind of slavishness born in Europe all those years ago and alive and squirming today. This is not my area of inquiry today. Elite's going to lead. What I am pondering is the nature of the two classes, if you like, the ruling and the working. 
the employing and the employed, the laborer and the thinker. Socrates had a day job, a stone carver. But to paraphrase the joke, do they call me Socrates the stone carver? No, you teach one class and you're Socrates the thinker. We'll never know. He threatened the state and they took him out. But he bestrode the two classes like a colossus. And he fought in the ranks against Sparta several times, perhaps a third class. In the very worthy discussions of the current state of affairs among our versions of the classes today, there seems to be an implicit assumption that one is better than the other. That if only the playing field were level, the student loans fairer, high school better, parenting better, equality of opportunity, we would all go for the better course. I don't think so. In fact, the opposite might be true. Maybe even the Socratic life might be a choice. Maybe we incentivize the Brahmin gig, because it is less fulfilling. We might consider the insatiable nature of the business climber or the competitive academic as inferior. I hope not. I'm not dealing in superior and inferior. I just put it out there. Recently and relentlessly, we have decided the insurrection an episode of unforgivable evil. I don't disagree it was criminal, but the condemnation from the sitting left and the claim that our democracy was threatened in any real way is overkill. Along with the record number of votes for Trump, it is a wake-up call. Punishing the participants which should not allow you to sleep easy. And I'm even less impressed with the claims about the George Floyd protests. The work of the exhausted, traumatized EMTs and nurses during the pandemic is heroic. It always is, as far as I can tell, pandemic or not. And they are not masochistic. They are, if anyone ever, heroic. And when the hours are human and the pay fair, I imagine it is very fulfilling work. But it isn't paid fair. Why is that? Why doesn't that trouble these people? Doctors, on the other hand, cosmeticians included, you cannot justify the discrepancy at all unless you say they are highly educated, therefore. Dr. King asked, if you pay a man who does a menial job a living wage, is it still menial? Somebody's got to do it. The criminal way the ruling class assumed they could treat the factory worker or coal miner of the Industrial Revolution was finally mitigated only by the union movement. Not by the ruling class. The claims on the humanity of the owner class in the Industrial Revolution were exactly the same as the peasants' revolt, and they failed. I have not seen this change, essentially except elitism comes with a condescending smile. I think that most of the mindless work, the body-breaking, hard, monotonous, debilitating stuff, has been outsourced, largely to Asia, easier to ignore. But what does remain, I suggest, is we raise the pay. 
We might have done this a generation ago and eased the pain, but we didn't. We went the other way, which was an awful shame. The average salary in the U.S. in 2020 hovers around 55,000. Employees get salaries. But these systemic, arrogant oversights aside, we might consider that the Trump lost cause is more complex than the creative class is comfortable with. Imagine they are not an enemy, but something dark and deep is missing for them, that they would find anything at all in his fraudulence that we could not compete with. Or is it the fraud that America has foisted on most of its people for so long? that we are at all a united democracy dedicated to equality. A fraud much easier to ignore when one is comfortable and insured. When my dad came to Pittsburgh in 1967, my mate's dad, just up the street, a plumber, earned three times what my father did, an associate professor. This bothered me when I was 11. I went to work with my friend's dad one day and it stopped bothering me right away. I would hasten to say my father earned enough to maintain a family of five and vitally he was much respected. Not so the EMT during the pandemic. As far as I can tell with my ears close to the rails, we humans have found elitism's irresistible and our discourse seems often obsessed with how we enter, who enters, what should be our decoration on entering, our correct compensation when we get there, and how do we remain there in our elite club. That our main human objective, which once was, and for a very, very long time, survival, seems to be a movement toward a version of the caste. I think it is probably natural if one has nothing else to do, no other motivation but being affirmed. What John Bull suggests to me, whether he meant it or not, is not that the peasants want to enter the upper classes, only that they want fair play in their own. And his God seems to suggest the same, especially as Adam and Eve did the same work the peasants did. Adam and Eve were not testing their purity, proving their, their honor, proving their, their virtue, their talent, vying for power, accumulating acc accolades, saving for a mortgage, or planning to publish. They were, however, digging and spinning. So it must have been after falling and casting out. Spinning was to make clothing. Before there was one God, we insisted on priest kings, we are told, the talented ones to rule, the go-betweens to the spirit world. Oh, that's very clever. Whoever came up with that trick should be holy in Hollywood. These kings were the first people who did not delve and spin and told everyone who did delve and spin how to delve and spin, and when and where and how much they would pay for it. And they do not still today place us, identify us, and do they not still today place us, identify us on this pecking order, 
and insist that it reflects a deep reality, a truth? And, and this is the killer, do we not agree? And humbly or egotistically take our place. John Ball was a priest. He was excommunicated at the age of 27, but carried on regardless. What a humanist. In a discussion a couple of years ago about the Peasants' Revolt, during which Ball was hung, drawn, and courted at age 42 for his participation and inspiration, an expert on the history expressed perfectly how we feel today, how we still side with royalty, how we still Downton Abbey it, the anointed. The peasants were uneducated, barely more than animals, she said, and therefore took the ruling class completely by surprise in their organization and their articulated demands. And today, the story of a peasant's rebellion catches us completely by surprise. Still, for all our surveillance, evidence of monolithic fear of the mob, we were surprised on January the 6th. Were we surveilling the wrong part of the peasantry? I don't know. I really don't. I haven't a clue. But I was not surprised that day. I don't think the Aristos and the monarchy were surprised in 1381. They had underestimated the commons, as they always do, but they were not surprised at the rage and savagery. They were hysterical about it. They knew it was due. And as the 1% gets richer and the police keep shooting, the powers, the powers that be today are anticipating greater unrest. And the media astonishingly waits with them doing their bidding again, stoking terror of protesters of police atrocity and then feigning shock at white rage, condemning it when the damage is done, always condemning an unrest in the name of democracy, which precisely ceases to be democracy the more you condemn unrest. Dear media, learn to anticipate. And today, the priest kings, after loads of strangulated and strangulating iterations, have become the best and the brightest. And we insist we were born this way, naturally talented, gifted by God, the new anointed, worthy of the lion's, worthy of the lion's share of resources, paid largely to tell other people what to do and how to live, the management class who do not delve nor spin. Oh, yes, but we do have the sacred right to vote. Today, the delvers and spinners elect the best and the brightest. Oh, what progress we have made. I wish John Ball were here to see the struggles necessary to maintain this pallid suffrage. This participation the mildest of peasants' demands would mock at. The arc of culture apparently burnt, bends toward authoritarianism. John Ball was brave. Where's the movie? Like Braveheart a hundred years ago. A hundred years earlier, also hung, drawn, and courted, by the way. Today, we don't hang and draw for dissent. We also don't dissent. Not like John Ball. We just go on with our love of inequality, our belief in a special few who just get it more than the rest. I listened to a Jacobin thing on YouTube, a very good podcast with Catherine 
Liu, I think it is, L-I-U, marvelous person, about the Brahmin left, which is therefore no left at all. Catherine was dissenting for sure, but John Ball had immense impact. He was speaking to them, the peasants, risking everything of them and their pain. Catherine was speaking to the compassion and outrage, possibly, of the elite. I know this. She was on Jacobin. Why don't these shows ever have a plumber on? Patronizing, I guess. How does one mobilize for the working class without talking to them? Asking what they want instead of telling them. And there seems to be a great confusion over who they are. Insurrectionist, racist, Trump lovers or the impoverished underclass working three minimum wage jobs to get by and speaking at them in a language I don't understand. Ken Loach made a marvelous film, uh, 1983, I think, The Red and the Blue, about the Labour Party and the Conservative Party political party conferences in Britain, southern Britain. Um, anyway, it's it's well worth try, trying to track down and watching. I think I think it is. In fact, it's free on YouTube. Ah, uh, the language of the Brahmin left is becoming incomprehensible to me. I think probably because their tongue is forked, but. The Liu language is suspiciously similar. Are they schooled from children to tell us what we should do? But no, this objective requires more, much art to conceal. Catherine is really something, but much less dangerous to the hierarchy than John, and makes me wonder who today's peasants are heeding and responding to. They're still here. Perhaps unheeded, or perhaps not needing heeding, having God on their side. He's always there, making sense of a miserable life rewarded in the hereafter. The fly in the ointment of his anointing. Then a discussion about the book Cast with Isabel Wilkerson, the author, and I wondered, if the delusion of the Brahmin goes away, are the untouchables free? I think so. Does their untouchableness disappear because there is no one repelled by their touch? I think it does. I think it is nearer the answer to the question I have had since I was 12. I was surrounded, we all were, by geniuses in, the, in those days. Why did we not get there to the place Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or Bernadette Devlin or Rosa Luxemburg described about the Brahmin and the untouchables? When I was 30-something, I was in New York City with some people at dinner. A woman asked me where I went to school, college, she meant. I knew by then. I said, well, I didn't. And she said she had gone to Radcliffe, which I knew. And I asked, how was it? She said, oh, it was so great. It was just great to be one of the creme. Is this what happens? I hope not, but it does seem to be an obsession, a totally understandable one, but it seems to fill a void. 
And my problem is with the void, not with the need to fill it. Harvard, Yale, PhD, Pulitzer, New York Times. Brahmin and their deep need. It seems maybe that there is a lot of stuff going on among the untouchables in modern society. I hope so anyway. But still, the Brahmins sniff, perhaps ashamed that they sniff, but sniff nonetheless. And also there is a lot of stuff about how if we get rid of the myth of the untouchables, we will see how many more of them will enter the ranks of the Brahmin. I don't understand that. It's not the point. A very wise woman recently said it was one of the tragedies of racism that so many special black people didn't get to realize their gifts. I totally agree. But the tragedy, that tragedy extends to all people for me because I don't believe in special ones. Or I think we all are. But I just don't believe that the talented have more rights than anybody. I keep expecting this not to be there, but it always is, as if the crimes of 400 years or 1,500 years ago really, really boil down to how many peasants could not get into Oxford. Why is this supposed to be such a significant deprivation? Well, because they would have been leaders for their people. Cesar Chavez graduated eighth grade. Fred Hampton went to community college. One might point out how ineffectual their highly educated leaders were. I don't think humanity has done very well following the best and the brightest. How are we doing? And therefore, I might say that they weren't the best or brightest, but I don't because I don't believe in them either way. I think when humanity has done anything to remark on in history, it was done by the ordinary. It was the sailors of the ships, not the admirals. What would I ask Isabel Wilkerson or Edward Snowden or Maya Angelou if I could? What I would ask them, why do people want to be Brahmin? I don't think they do. It seems to be why nothing has changed, despite the genius we have all inherited. Be careful it does. It allows one to feel, particularly if one is not born Brahmin, but achieves it, that one is talented, fair enough, however, that one is superior. There is a code. It says, the people should have the opportunity to be successful. Successful. Brahmin. Feudal. No one isn't born to it. One achieves it. Though, let us be honest, but even so, it has the same effect. Writing a successful bestseller means you have appealed to a lot of people. That is everything. And one is introduced to strangers. However one is introduced to strangers, he needs no introduction. He is special. 
He's a best-selling Pulitzer Prize-winning author. They don't feel they are Brahmin or Krem, but unfortunately, with very few exceptions, bestsellers make me sleep. They seem to say, look, I found the way to write a bestseller. Do you like my bestseller writing, like movies that win Oscars? Maybe that's why reading is so difficult these days. It isn't the story. It's how it is told. I don't understand the language. This is my fault. To be clear. People write great stories not because they're geniuses. They write great stories because they're common to me. Does the modern Western non-hereditary meritocrat Brahmin sit and talk to the untouchables of their neighborhood? Have they moved away from their neighborhood to, to one free of them? Or better, do they find them interesting? Not as a study or as an exercise, but interesting, you know, sexy. Do we find each other, each other interesting or sexy? That's all it is. Do you feel, do I feel, do you feel in intellectual circles that you are with interesting people? Or are they just people you are, com are comfortable with who talk like you? Nothing wrong with that. However, depending on your mission, on what your mission is, there is everything wrong with it. When Hillary Clinton was in West Virginia, she said coal mining was a dying industry and she was booed. She might have said, then cancel all my flights and tomorrow stops. Order sandwiches and coffee and let's talk it out right here, right now in this room. Yes, me and you. <laughs> I proposed this once and someone said, you can't just do that. It's a Brahmin argument. The truth is she couldn't because she couldn't. She doesn't have the language. She might have learned it that night. She has that kind of talent, but she didn't. I don't know why, but when I do hang out with strangers, and if I make them comfortable enough, I feel like I have come home. I think I was brought up Brahmin, but I fell out of the pram. I know there were wars with my mother over this territory unresolved. I don't think there is a resolution, but it seems like talking to the Brahmin is a competition. Very tiresome. And they will insist to you and themselves that they are not changed by their rise. I think it is true, because a real talent got the woman into Radcliffe. She was very charming. It's a long time ago, and that is evidence of talent. But I sense I always have a kind of uneasiness and an insistence that what they think or have to say is useful and interesting because of how they say it, how they're trained to say it. I say, more matter, less art. As Gertrude said to Polonius, <laughs> 